Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Despite the calendar saying late October, the wildfire season refuses to die down. Flames from the East Troublesome Fire crossed into Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado this past week, forcing the evacuation of Grand Lake on the western side of the park and prompting closure of the entire park to visitors. Elsewhere in the national park system, a World War II bomb washed ashore at Cape Hatteras National Seashore in North Carolina, and five landscape architectural firms released their visions for repairing the tidal basin at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. You can read those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. We are not alone in this world. We share it, obviously, with wildlife and marine life and the vegetation that grows on land and in the oceans. How we treat those landscapes can have detrimental impacts to those other life forms. The push to sink a sprawling open-pit copper and molybdenum mine near Lake Clark National Park and Preserve in Bristol Bay in Alaska has raised more than a few fears of how it might impact the lands and waters in that region. While much has been said about how the mine might impact Bristol Bay's rich salmon fisheries, what about beluga whales that swim in the bay? What is behind the rapid decline of beluga whales in Alaska's Cook Inlet, a 180-mile-long body of water that runs southwest from Anchorage along a number of national parks, national wildlife refuges, and wilderness areas down to the Gulf of Alaska? Is it climate change, environmental stressors, or a combination of both? And how does the health of the beluga whale population in Cook Inlet compare to the health of beluga populations in other Alaskan waters? These are questions a beluga specialist team from the Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut plans to tackle as it embarks on a study to see what's causing the lack of recovery in this critically endangered mammal. The traveler's Lynn Riddick touched base with Dr. Tracy Romano to get a general picture of beluga whales and what they're up against in their struggle for survival in Alaska's Cook Inlet. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the Parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. America's leading experts on beluga whales is Dr. Tracy Romano. 
Dr. Romano is founder of the field of marine mammal neuroimmunology and a leading expert in marine mammal health. She is chief scientist and vice president of biological research at Mystic Aquarium in Mystic, Connecticut, and is joining us from her office at the University of Connecticut in Groton. Hi, Tracy. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, Lynn. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, we are very interested in your work on beluga whales and the threats to this diminishing species. First, can you give us a beluga whale primer and the reasons they are scientifically unusual? Well, beluga whales are unique. They're an Arctic and subarctic species. And what we don't know is how climate change is going to impact these wonderful animals. There's so many different facets of belugas. They're known, they used to be known by fishermen as canaries of the sea because of all the different types of vocalizations that they emit. They're also uh, a white, white in color, beautiful animals. They uh, lack a dorsal fin, unlike other cetacean species, dolphins and whales. Uh, they just have a, a dorsal ridge. They also have a very flexible neck, which makes them unique. So they can uh, move their head, turn their head back. Uh, they're really adapted for life in the Arctic, in a, in a harsh environment. And the Arctic right now is ground zero for climate change. And so belugas, along with many other Arctic species, are under threat. And we don't really know what will be the ultimate fate of these animals, but we're doing all we can to ensure that they survive and they thrive and uh, do not become extinct. How long can they live in the wild? There have been uh, records of animals in the wild living up to 60 years, although in their 60s, although the average, I would say, is in the, the 30s to 40s range. And what is their current endangered status? Well, beluga populations, for the most part, are okay. There's approximately 150,000 belugas worldwide. However, there are smaller subpopulations that are under threat. And usually those are genetically isolated, they're smaller in number. And there's examples that, that we have, such as the critically endangered Cook Inlet population right here in the United States, but also uh, the St. Lawrence population, the St. Lawrence River estuary population is also under threat. So there are sub pockets of smaller uh, subgroups that, that are, endangered and threatened. And then I might add, you know, again, as I mentioned, their environment is under threat. So we need to make sure that those animals that are currently okay, those belugas that are currently okay, continue to thrive despite all the changes in their environment and the rapid change. Any idea of how many belugas are kept in captivity? Well, in accredited zoos and aquariums, uh, we have approximately 30-something animals, but there are also belugas in other parts of the world that are in aquariums around the world. But I would say in the United States, for accredited aquariums, it's, it's a rather small population of animals. 
And I'm sure you know, not all things are equal for belugas that are under the care of humans. The trauma of their capture, storage, and transportation to marine mammal parks all over the world evokes regular outrage and often conditions once they arrive, including sustained injuries, inadequate tank size, and overcrowding are subpar for thriving and survival. So what do you know about the health of belugas in captivity versus the health of belugas in the wild versus the health of belugas in research facilities like yours? Well, first of all, when you, the aquarium environment, and again, when I speak of aquarium environment, I'm, I'm talking of those aquariums that are accredited and, and go under the rigorous process of meeting certain optimal standards for maintaining the health and care of these animals. And I know of no other animals that are better cared for than beluga whales in accredited aquaria. And I'm, I'm speaking specifically from our aquarium at, at Mystic Aquarium. You, you take away all of the threats that humans have imposed on their environment. So so what's happening in their environment? They're subjected to loud sound through shipping and oil exploration and scientific survey. They're subjected to shifts in prey due to climate change. They're subjected to emerging pathogens with climate change. They're subjected to pollution in the environment. And those are just a few of the, the challenges and the threats that they face every day in their environment. When you take them out of that environment into a, you know, a nurturing, supportive environment, they have no predators, they have restaurant quality food, even, even uh, higher in inspected food quality than you normally would. So they're getting the optimal food, the optimal care. They have their own personal physician with uh, routine health checks on a regular basis. So, so they're given a, an environment to thrive. And really they're in that environment for us to learn all we can about belugas under controlled conditions that we can relate back to those animals in the wild to try to help conserve and protect animals in the wild and also to educate people. So animals, uh, so people can learn about belugas. Some people will never get an opportunity to see belugas in the wild and to really have an opportunity to understand what their threats are, to see these animals and to really want to engage people to do all that they can to help with their protection in the wild. So health in an aquarium environment is optimal <laughs> with again, their own personal uh, physician and veterinarian. Health in the wild is questionable these days given all of the anthropogenic impacts on their environment and what we have done as humans to infringe on their environment. So their environment's under threat, their health's under threat. With the aquarium animals, we're trying to learn all we can and we take away all those confounding variables that we have in the wild to really learn about their health and to develop techniques that we can to utilize to study the health of the animals and monitor the health of the animals in the wild. Now, belugas as business, 
what are some of the trends for beluga capture for entertainment purposes? Well, I think in in Asia, there's there's a lot of trends for collecting animals from the wild. You know, we don't do that in, in the United States. Most of the animals that are in aquaria have been born from um, animals. So as, as a business, again, Mystic Aquarium isn't in the beluga business per se. We're all about research, education, and conservation. And that's what our mission is, to inspire people to care for and protect our ocean planet through conservation, education, and research. So from our standpoint, the belugas are here to learn as much as we can and to, again, engage the public to inspire the public to really care for these animals and be aware of what's happening to them in the wild. Now, for years, you have studied the belugas of Cook Inlet, Alaska, where belugas are classified as critically endangered. Cook Inlet is in South Central Alaska and runs along two national parks, Katmai National Park and Preserve and Lake Clark National Park and Preserve. Tell us about the geography of that area and why it is such a favored sanctuary for belugas. So I, I per se haven't studied Cook Inlet belugas myself. Uh, we have just been funded to apply some of our health techniques to monitor the population of Cook Inlet belugas. But there is a small population of belugas uh, that have been in Cook Inlet. And these animals, they think the hunt, the native subsistence hunt, couldn't uh, sustain the population. And so a moratorium was put on hunting Cook Inlet belugas uh, years ago, but the animals still haven't recovered. So we're not sure why this population of belugas hasn't recovered. And it's located right next to one of the busiest ports in Alaska, and that's Anchorage. And there's a lot of uh, man-made threats in Cook Inlet. And even the geography itself, you know, there have been a lot of cases where belugas themselves get stranded on the mudflats in Cook Inlet. And uh, that's the geography itself in Cook Inlet, I know has, has been an issue for beluga strandings. Now, much of your work is creating a baseline of health data for belugas, is that correct? Can you take us through that process? Sure, again, well, one of the uh, opportunities of having the animals in our care is it's threefold. One, we take away confounding variables that we have in the wild. So for example, we know how old the animals are, we know their health history, we know all about the environment that they live, the water chemistry, we know the water temperature, and we know their source of food and where their food comes from, and we know how much they're eating on a regular basis. So taking away those confounding variables that we don't know in the wild, and starting with what we know is a healthy beluga, and say that we know it's a male or a female, and we know the age, and what their environment is like, really helps us hone in and answer uh, certain questions. More so, our animals are trained to provide and participate in giving us biological samples. And so we're not capturing animals to get samples. They're actually, for example, 
giving us their tail flukes and to enable us to take a blood sample to monitor their health from a veterinary standpoint, but also for research purposes. And so without any undue stress, we're getting biological samples such as blood, saliva, breath. They've been trained to exhale into a Petri dish. We can get fecal samples and urine samples and take ultrasounds, all with the cooperation of the animals in our care. So it really provides us with a mechanism for getting biological samples to take back to the lab on a regular basis. And then the third thing is that the belugas participate in research experiments. So they can participate in sound studies, for example. We can train them to participate in sound studies so we can look at the impact of certain sounds, not only on their hearing, but also on their health by measuring uh, the response, the physiological response to hormones. We can also take the opportunity to, to take opportunistic events. So for example, in, in the beginning, you mentioned transport. Well, we've actually studied transport and we have the opportunity to monitor biological samples from these animals before, during, and after transport. And we show that you know, they undergone a routine, regular response that's, that's normal, thank goodness, because if they didn't undergo this, this, what people call a stress response, then they wouldn't survive. So this is a normal, routine response, and we've been able to measure the transport under those conditions. And so we have a reference value before transport, and then we have a, a scenario that we know is a physiological response. Now, we've started from the beginning because we don't know what hormones are involved. We don't know how long they last, what their timing is. But by studying the animals in aquaria, we've been able to determine what hormones are involved in the physiological response, how long, what the time course is for those hormones, and when they return to baseline. We've also participated in studying animals in the wild, for example. So with other scientists, we capture belugas from the wild and we're putting satellite transmitters on them to see where they go and to measure parameters in their environment, such as how deep they dive, how frequently they dive, what the water temperature is, and of course their location. But at the same time, when we're catching those animals for satellite transmitters, we can take blood, we can take breath, we can take skin. And so we're comparing what we're seeing in the wild animals after capture versus compared to the reference values that we have of whales in the aquaria. Now, the, what confounds some of those values is the capture and, and restraint itself involved in those live capture release studies. But again, it does enable us to measure some of these values in wild uh, belugas. Now you have just received a $10,000 grant from the NOAA Marine Mammal Lab for a pilot study on the Cook Inlet beluga population. And it's part of NOAA's Cook Inlet Beluga Recovery Plan. Tell us what your study will entail and how much is already known about the health of beluga whales in Cook Inlet currently? So, so again, to study endangered uh, populations, 
most of the research is hands-off. So you have to look at non-invasive methods for collecting biological samples to assess health. And so, for example, drones are being used in many different dolphin and whale studies to take photographs, to look at body conditions, such as some of the work that's going on in Cook Inlet. But also remote skin biopsy is also an option. And, and remote skin biopsies from some of the large whales as well as the smaller whales has been used for years. Although the technology is really advancing and, and what we can tell from the skin and the blubber. So we can tell a lot of information and basically these remote biopsy uh, darts are, you know, you can be on a boat and if you have good aim, uh, you're able to get a piece of skin from a free ranging whale and then retrieve that piece of skin uh, to study in the lab. And you can study their genetics. You can tell if they're male or female. You can look at contaminants. You can look at hormones, you can look at reproductive state. What we're doing is taking that a step further. And what we specialize in is studying the immune system and how different environmental and man-made stressors can impact the immune system. And so we're using molecular techniques to study genes that are important in the immune response and in the physiological response to stressors, whether they be man-made or environmental, and looking at some of those signatures to see if genes change, whether they increase their expression or decrease their expression. And the beauty of this study that was, that was just funded is that our colleagues are able to get remote skin biopsies from Cook Inlet belugas but in the past, we've archived skin biopsies from two different healthy populations of belugas. So we have belugas from the Chukchi Sea, where we've participated in live capture release health assessments, as well as Bristol Bay. And so we have a tissue base where we can begin to compare the different populations. And again, the Bristol Bay population and the Chukchi are uh, relatively healthy belugas, but we know that there are issues with the Cook Inlet belugas. And we don't know what's causing the lack of recovery, but certainly health is a major, if you don't have health and fitness and can't reproduce, that's a major contributor, I would think, to a lack of recovery. And so we're taking the first step in developing this technique to look at what may be unique to Cook Inlet belugas. And it's a pilot study, but we hope we can really develop this and broaden it. And even, uh, for example, we also have some tissues from St. Lawrence belugas. And is there something unique or specific that we can pull out from these endangered belugas that's different from the other populations. Now, will your sampling um, include the presence of toxins in belugas there? Yeah, so we're, we're not looking specifically at contaminants, but other scientists are. And that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really looking at this 
at the lack of recovery from all different angles. So it's not just looking at the immune system that's gonna tell us what's happening, but it's taking that data and pairing that with the studies on body condition or pairing that with the studies on prey, prey species and looking and, and taking those skin samples with those that are looking at contaminants and putting the data all together. So it's, it's taking the expertise and looking at this scientifically from many different angles uh, is really where we're gonna make some headway. Do you have a timetable for the study? The study is funded for a year. And again, it's a, it's a pilot study. So we're really hoping, actually, and actually I'm working on some grant proposals to expand the study. Um, I was working on that today. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to expand this into a much larger study. Yeah, it sounds like it's a pretty thorough study and you probably could use a bit more funding. Exactly, uh, a bit more funding and, and some more time. And again, you know, the, the pilot money doesn't allow us to analyze all the samples that we have archived. And we would really like to be able to archive all of uh, the samples as well as future samples that are, that are obtained from Cook Inlet Belugas. I want to ask you about Pebble Mine, but first some background information for our listeners. Over the past four years, the Trump administration has dismantled major climate policies and has reversed or is in the process of reversing some 100 environmental rules for clean air and clean water, wildlife, and toxic chemicals. One such recent action is a withdrawal of proposed restrictions on the so-called Pebble Mine Project, which would allow a Canadian company to conduct open pit mining for copper, gold, and molybdenum in Bristol Bay, Alaska. Environmental and conservation groups, Native American groups, and the fishing industry say this massive project with its roads, pipelines, utilities, a power plant, and a port would impact the landscape and waters around a number of national parks and wildlife refuges, including the headwaters of some of the world's most productive salmon rivers. In 2014, the Obama administration had said the project posed too much of a threat to the fisheries in Bristol Bay waters and halted the project. But six months into Trump's tenure, the EPA opened a 90-day comment period on its proposal to overturn that decision. And just this past July, the Trump administration said the proposed mine would not harm fisheries in Bristol Bay and would be an economic boost for Alaskans. I wanted to ask you, what's your take on this issue and how might mining like that affect the belugas? Well, there's so much that can affect the belugas. And one thing we haven't really talked about is cumulative stressors. So already these animals are undergoing challenges and threats. And we know that they're not reproducing, they're not recovering at a rate that will sustain the population. So now adding even more insult <laughs> to that just adds to the compromise of the health of these animals. So again, with mining comes heavy metals and pollutants and contaminants. Uh, with the, the mining, there's noise associated with you know, construction and, and the mining itself, 
we don't know how it's going to impact and shift the, the entire ecosystem. And so again, it's adding yet another stressor for these animals that are already compromised to deal with. And it's not just impacting the belugas. Belugas are at the top of the food chain. So it's it can impact everything below. And when it impacts even one area of an entire food web, that can be uh, disastrous. And oil and gas operations are another issue. There's already a number of platforms and pipelines in state waters of the Cook Inlet, but just this month, due to low pandemic-related oil prices, the Glacier Oil and Gas Company asked state regulators to let them shut down two Cook Inlet facilities indefinitely. Now, ironically, at the same time, the Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management has announced that it will study the environmental impact of leasing up to 1 million acres of federal waters in Cook Inlet for oil and gas exploration and production. Oil and gas activity is already allowed on state-owned waters in the inlet. The Center for Biological Diversity has criticized the proposed lease sale, saying that the government should protect beluga whales in the inlet instead of offering more federal waters to the oil industry. So will any of your beluga whale data be included in this government environmental impact study? And do you have any plans to present what you do know and make it part of the dialogue? So our goal in, in research is really to provide meaningful data to those that are making the decisions and to show the science. And you know, the hope is to base everything on the science. So it's going to take some time for, for development of this technique and to validate the technique. We're trying to do it as soon as possible, but that is the hope that it will be yet another tool that, that we have that will provide information on the impact of belugas and to help put, in reg, put regulations into place and to really help help protect the animals uh, so they can recover and they can thrive. Can you describe the relationship of belugas to Native Americans and how does the decline of belugas affect them? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Ever since I was a graduate student, I have been, I've had the privilege of participating in research in an Inupiat village on the North Slope of Alaska. And I've really come to understand the link and the strong tie between belugas and the people. And I've realized that belugas are not just a nutritional resource for the people. You know, many times they have to rely on belugas for food. Belugas are a, a nutritional resource for uh, people on the North Slope. However, in the, the village that I've worked at through the years, it's, it, belugas are much more than a nutritional resource. Not only are they important for nutrition, they're important spiritually, they're important for medicinal purposes, and really, they're a social instrument that ties the community. It brings the community together. 
when it's time for the subsistence beluga hunt. And it also, there's a sharing of beluga products within the community, but also outside of the community. And so it really ties people with other villages on the North Slope and actually other communities globally. And, you know, belugas, belugas are part of the identity of people in the North. And if they disappear, I, you know, that's a question. What will happen to some of these communities that have such a strong tie with belugas and have relied on belugas? I also want to say that our research isn't possible without the cooperation and the knowledge of the people in the villages that have relied on belugas. We've learned so much from them, and it's really a partnership in moving the research forward on, on belugas. So, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough that when we talk about uh, pebble mine or we talk about oil and gas, it's really those... You know, the, the people that rely on belugas and marine resources and have so much knowledge that that really need to be included in this in this discussion. What other parts of Alaska have beluga populations? Um, there's there's been five identified beluga populations in Alaska. Those belong to the Beaufort Sea, which is shared with Canada, the Chukchi Sea, the Bering Sea. And of course, Bristol Bay and Cook Inlet. And I and I forgot to mention that the live capture release studies in Bristol Bay are really serving as a control population for the Cook Inlet belugas because they're very close in in proximity. Do you know how many belugas are in the Cook Inlet population? There's uh, there's approximately. In 2018, they came out with 279 belugas. So there's less than 300 in Cook Inlet. Any idea what a healthy population would be? Well, it used to be 1,300 belugas before the population wasn't recovering. So it needs to be up in the high numbers for a population to thrive. Well, those are all the questions I have. Is there anything else you might want to add about your work with belugas and your upcoming study? Uh, just that it's it's really important. I, I think what's so powerful in these studies is studying belugas in the wild and pairing that with studying the belugas under uh, professional care. And there's both of those complement one another. And I'd say I've had the privilege of doing both, of working in aquaria and also studying the animals in the wild. And, you know, this study that we're doing is an example of that. And again, working with the native people, that is so important. And to have their cooperation and support is, is so, so valuable. And so what motivates us is, really to uh, prevent the decline of belugas in, the, in their rapid and changing environment and really to ensure that the, the Cook Inlet beluga population and others that are threatened and endangered, we hope they will recover through some of the work that we're trying to do and others. And again, uh, taking that and putting all of our expertise together to really help 
uh, beluga conservation. Tracy, I want to thank you for your time today. I wish you the best in your efforts to monitor the health of beluga whales and ultimately ensure their survival. All right. Thank you, Lynn. Again, thank you for the opportunity. Our pleasure. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be sitting down with former National Park Service Director John Jarvis, Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association, and Phil Francis, Chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, to discuss how the Park Service and the National Park System could be impacted by the outcome of the presidential election on November 3rd. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.